Good morning. So uh, Eric did a great job last week, apparently so much so that you guys don't even want me around anymore, apparently. So I don't, hey, hey, I don't say it like that. I'm just saying. I just got a friends in a small group and they always, you know, like to talk about me and now they're talking about Eric, so I'm like, mm. <laughs> If you are new, uh, there's a Bible, it's not about me, by the way. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you've got one, you can use one. There's uh, notes for this morning because you're all going to want them. <laughs> Wait till you see. Uh, on all the communion tables because you'll want to follow along. If you signed up to play softball, uh, your money is due today. John Warren is right there. Uh, Brits, uh, Britt had a kind of a family tragedy, so he's actually, they're down south. And so John's going to be collecting the money from you. And believe me, he's got a bat in his car because he plays softball. So don't leave or... Someone's coming for your legs. I'm just kidding. You guys got to lighten up this morning, especially for what we're going to be doing with Esther today, all right? Gee, okay, um, if, if you are here this morning in first service, which you are, and you have a child somewhere back there, or maybe not even a child somewhere, but we need uh, child care people to help out uh, at the 11 o'clock service. So if you're here, that's great, because this could be like your service. I'll go to the 9.30. Yay, good for you. But we need some help in the 11 o'clock service. And so if you'd be willing to do that, uh, this is Deanna right here. Okay, uh, go, go and see Deanna for me and just say, I'd love to help out. Maybe once a month. It's not like every week you got to do this, but like once a month or so. Maybe if you're really industrious every other week. Okay. And unless you're like a weird, real weirdo, then we don't want you at all. It's like, I like kids. You know, we don't want you. We want the people who <laughs> like kids in a good way. So, you know, go and talk to Deanna and do that. And lastly, I've got a big ask. If you know somebody who is a magician or does really good card tricks, not, not, like, a, not, not like for kids' parties, not like a... You know, not, not one of those. I, I, see, I can't even do it right. I'm like... Okay, but if you know somebody who's good at them and, and does card tricks or something that's really good, would you come and let me know? Because I need them for something that we're going to be doing, and they need to be good. All right. This is the reason I'm standing over here this morning. Why don't you guys stand with me? The reading to God's Word, and we'll get going. This is Psalm 37, verse 13, and it says, But the Lord laughs the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. Let's pray. Father, we ask that this morning we'd be a people who understand you better by the things that we read in your word. God, that we would understand that that laughter is good and that you see things that a lot of times humans do that we take so seriously and you just see them as comedy. And so we ask this morning that we would have a lightness of heart that reflects who you are. Amen. Have a seat. So again, this is week 11 of Esther. We have heard many different things happening throughout the book, but today I'm going to try and help you to see this, sort of. We'll see how this goes. Esther is a book full of comedy and irony and over-the-top happenings. It's like a great vaudeville play. Anybody ever been to the melodrama? Anybody ever not been to the melodrama? Okay, you need to get your men to take you to the melodrama. This is going to be kind of like that a little bit. Not as good, but we're going to give it a shot. Uh, this chapter is over. The t- if you are new this morning, this is not what we normally do. Do not walk out thinking, hey, that's the weirdest place I've ever been. Uh, this is not what we normally do. We actually, since we've been here, I don't think we've ever done a skit. Uh, if you've been here for a while and you see this, you're going to maybe out of place a little bit because, again, we've never done a skit. Uh, there's an old TV show called Three's Company. Maybe it's, that's a little theme song? Yeah, well, okay. And it's a, come and knock on my door. You know, that, that little, right, okay. 
It's, it, it's all this humor that, that isn't really that funny, but it's based on innuendo, misconstruing things that were being said. Uh, this is what happens today <clears throat> kind of in the text in Esther chapter 7. I have a Bible, you can hold us Esther chapter 7 if you want to. So I'm going to introduce you to a cast of characters, but as we do this, you're going to help me. All right? This is, again, like, like vaudeville, melodrama, you're going to help me with this. Here's the cast of characters. We have the king. You go, eh. So you don't really know what to think about the king. Throughout the thing, the, the king is like a, he's like a bumbling. He's got a parade wave. He's Xerxes. See, he's got the big X for Xerxes. This is King Xerxes. All right, you can sit down there. Oh, there's my wine. That's right. He's a bumbling man, but he's smarter than he seems. The next we have Haman. Where's Haman? Yes. Haman, Haman is the villain of the story. He's a self-righteous man. He's got too much self-importance. And lastly, you have Queen Esther. She is. She is brilliant. A tad gaudy in her head robe. Yeah. Okay. So here we go. Follow me. Follow me, people. Over here. Okay. I'll give you the background. The Persian king loves his wine and his women, but doesn't have a whole lot of backbone when it comes to his friends. His first wife, Vashti, refuses to degrade herself in front of a bunch of drunk frat guys at the Spearmint Rhino. So she gets removed from her place as queen. She probably gets killed. The king, at the request of his buddies, decides, I'm going to get all the best-looking virgins throughout the land of Persia together, give them a year's worth of beauty treatments, and then they're all going to come and spend one night with me. I'm going to pick the best one. That will be the next queen. Now, the queen eventually chooses a young Jew named... Stop it! The queen eventually chooses a young Jew named Esther to be his next queen. But he does not know she is a Jew. There's a subtle confrontation between, Haman, between Esther's uncle Mordecai and the king's advisor Haman. When Mordecai offends Haman, Haman decides to get the king to issue an order to kill all the Jews in Persia like you do when you're mad. Mordecai comes to Esther and says, do something, you're the queen. And Esther says, like that has ever helped a queen in Persia. See, I need to help sometimes. That's, that's, there might just be a couple of these during the message, just warning you right here. Mordecai says, God brought you to this place for this moment, so you have to do something. Esther says, tell the people to fast and pray and I will do something. Esther, yay. <laughs> Esther then sets a plan in motion by inviting Haman to a meal with the king. At the end of the meal, she simply requests that the king and Haman come back for another meal. Haman thinks he is being honored, but Esther is setting it up so she can get the king's wrath leveled at Haman and save her people. She has subtly, very much so, made the king begin to see Haman as a rival for his throne. So what happens, and this is an interesting thing actually in the story, because Esther is probably onto something the king never even saw. Uh, something Esther would see in the way, in the, in the way that, that Haman speaks to the king throughout the book of Esther, there are subtle overtones that he sees himself as an equal with the king. 
So Haman leaves his first meal. He is happy, probably pretty inebriated. He passes Mordecai on the way out of the king's palace, and Mordecai doesn't even acknowledge him. So Haman that same night goes, and he erects a stake 75 feet high to try and impale Esther's uncle Mordecai on. Now, that very night, the king can't sleep. He's so bothered, so he reads some history about himself, and he realizes that Mordecai saved his life at one point, and he never said thank you. Exactly. So Haman, at the same time as the king's reading this, comes in the middle of the night because he's got this great idea. I'm going to stake this guy named Mordecai on this stake. The, the king is waking and groggy and irritable. About like Patrick always looks. <laughs> and he shows him, he says, I'm going to impale Mordecai on this stake. And, and before he gets it out of his mouth, though, the king looks at him and he says, What should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Haman thinks, this has got to be me because the king likes me so much. So this is what Haman says. Give him one of the king's robes, meaning dress him like a king. Put him on the king's horse, meaning one the king has actually ridden. Parade this man around through the city square. Have more people bow to him. Have one of the king's highest men walk before this man shouting his praise. This is only what is done for kings. And so the king says, great idea. Haman, do that for Mordecai. And Haman has to do it all. He is humiliated. Haman probably actually has to kneel on the ground while Mordecai steps on his back to get onto the horse. (laughs) Then he has to parade him around the town shouting praise before him. But this also shows that Haman wanted to be the king. He had his eyes on kingship. Uh, All the things he requested of the king are things for a king. There are some ancient commentaries that teach that the first assassination plot against King Xerxes was actually orchestrated by... Haman. So chapter 7, which is where we're at today, if you're Bible, chapter 7, this brings an end to the rivalry between Haman and Mordecai. As you're looking down. Yay! You're like, thank God it'll be over soon. Mordecai had just received the honor Haman intended for himself, and Haman now gets the disgrace that he intended for Mordecai. Chapter 7 takes place during a meal. It's another drinking party with sexual overtones. Come and knock on my door. Just, okay. <laughs> This is just like how the book started, uh, but this time the queen is totally off limits. Xerxes might have learned his lesson. Uh, I don't know. I, may, I don't believe it either. So Esther chapter 7 verse 1 starts like this. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. You're getting the hang of it. And as they were drinking wine that second day... Now, what's interesting is the first time they're drinking wine out of styrofoam cups because they're so classy. Uh, The first time they're drinking wine together. Uh, This is when Haman got this whole plot hatched to kill all the Jews. This time, though, the queen is present. As they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be granted. What is your request? Even Even up to half the kingdom will be given. This time he says it with with manly flavor. Queen Esther, it will be granted even up to half the kingdom. Okay, all right. So Esther responds. I was so enthralled. Uh, Esther responds with with an answer. This is for, uh, this is formal language that Esther responds with. Queen Esther answered, "If I have found favor with you, O king." And if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people 
This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I would have kept quiet. For no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Now when she says this, it's not what the king expects. I mean, look at his face. He's totally surprised. Okay, totally surprised. So, so when the king then asks, he says, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be granted. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given. And she replies with these words. If I have found favor with you, O king, if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. And spare my people. Now hold on. Now say, look at this. Now look at his face. He's totally surprised. <laughs> he doesn't know this is coming. He's like, what kind of request is my queen going to make me? She want a, uh, another house. She want a horse. And she's pleading for her life. So he's totally surprised. Okay. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. <laughs> If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet. But because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Did you hear? She replies with these words. If I have found favor with you. The word favor in the Hebrew text is the word grace. It's the word grace. She builds her case on a personal relationship with the king. Now, the king clearly loves Esther in his totally bizarre sort of way. He has already lost one queen. He's not about to lose another. So Esther says these words. If Grant me my life. Grant me my life. <laughs> this is my petition. And spare... The lives of my people. That is my request. Pride. For we, I, and my people have been sold for destruction, slaughter, and annihilation. So what she does is she starts with the Jew closest in proximity to the king. That's herself. Then she links all of her people with her. This is why she says, For I and my people have been sold as... The, the reference here... You're good. That's good. You guys are never getting out of here this morning. The reference here is to chapter 3, when Haman tries to tell the king that he would pay for any loss incurred by the destruction of these people because slaves make kings money. Uh, Haman actually refers to them as Mordecai's people. She says, I. I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. These are the exact same words that Haman used in the decree to get all the Jews killed. Then she says, 
If we had merely been sold as slaves, I wouldn't have bothered you because, because no such distress is, is worthy of disturbing the king. She tells the king, I know I'm disturbing you with my request. The word Esther uses is the word slave. What? Slaves! <laughs> slaves. This is actually the word enslavement. It, at this time, Persian nobles were what were called bandaka. Like you all know what that means. Uh, this meant slaves to the king, slaves to the king. From a Jewish perspective, the Jews would still see themselves as slaves to the kings of Persia. In Ezra 9.9, when they go back to actually start to rebuild their temple, they were still under a decree by the Persian king. And this is what Ezra writes. Though we are slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. But how Esther uses the word here has great meaning. What she has just done is she has painted Haman as a traitor to the king. Now, the king would understand that one or two people could be sold or destroyed underneath him, but an entire people could only become slaves of another or entirely destroyed if a new entity came to power. Esther speaks of killing and enslaving. The words are ripe with the words of language and conquest. This is political and it is sexual. To sell the Jews into slavery would imply that they have been wrestled away from the king and they have been given to somebody else who has now come to power. Now Xerxes at this point in history has just gotten his butt whipped by the Greeks. And he's not about to take it in his own palace. And Esther knows that. The king originally may not have understood Haman's request in this way, but it does not mean that Haman did not intend it this way. If so, it's treason. Esther repaints everything that Haman has done so far with the, to the king, and this is essentially what she says. Haman has a plot to rob you of a whole group of servants and subjects, and, and even your queen, because he wants you to feel less secure on your throne. <laughs> Esther is framing Haman as a traitor, just exactly like Haman framed all of the Jews as traitors. She's brilliant. When she says, if we, if I have found favor with if you, if we have merely been sold, if, if, if we, what? Had merely been sold. <laughs> if we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet. This is a direct reference to when Mordecai comes to her in chapter 4 and says, if you remain silent at this time. She takes his warning seriously. She even, she even tells the king that her people were going to be killed. Haman orchestrated it. Also, the king made no profit from it. What? If we had merely been sold. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet. I, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Well, she tells the king if he didn't stand and suffer a financial loss, she wouldn't say anything at all, wouldn't even make this request. She is very physically responsible for a woman who was just offered half the kingdom. Thank you. In Hebrew, the, the titles, or the, the, the conversation is the focused on these titles. King Xerxes, Queen Esther. This is a conversation between them. Haman doesn't have any lines in this section of the text. He's just sitting there going, what the heck is going on? Oh my goodness. The king says, in double time. Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be granted. What is your request? 
Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. And she replies, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life, that is my petition, and spare my people, that is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction, slaughter, and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing you, the king. Now, King Xerxes, his wheels start turning in his mind. He, he likes his queen. She's the best-looking woman in all of Persia. He likes her. He doesn't want to lose her. He likes his power. He likes what he likes. And so in verse 5, King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Who has? Who is this guy that thinks he can do this to us? The word is actually demanded. Oh, sorry. Okay. The word is actually demanded. King Xerxes demanded of Queen Esther. Who is he? Who is this man who has dared to do such a thing? Again, this literally means in the text, who filled him to do these things? <laughs> this, 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 not yet. This ties in. <laughs> this ties in with the themes of revenge all throughout the book. Esther's response is not even aimed at the king. It's actually aimed at Haman. Verse 6. Esther says, The adversary and enemy... Is this vile Haman? Now, now imagine you are Haman. This is what it would look like for you. She says, The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. And you're supposed to freak out. Literally, these are two words. These are two words making one concept. It means vicious enemy. Vicious enemy. He now becomes... Haman becomes the enemy of the king and the queen as well. Again, Haman gets no words. This whole section is meant for people to be able to see. That's why I did this, so you can see what's going on. It's reaction and what's taking place. It says, verse 6, Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The words literally mean cringed in terror. He's blindsided. He's like, I don't know what's happening, what's going on. Verse 7, Then the king got up in a rage and... And left his wine. Oh, I did? Oh, I can't do this. <laughs> Gotta have the vino. You know it's bad when the king leaves his wine. So he gets up and he left his wine and went out of the palace garden. But Haman, realizing the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. <laughs> if Esther doesn't change her mind, then Haman knows that he is going to die, that the king is going to... <laughs> Destroy him. Now, again, the Hebrew here is full of movement. It doesn't show it, it doesn't show verbal reaction to Esther's words. What it does is it just shows movement. Come back, King. Haman, get back over here. Haman. Haman. Okay. This is what it wants wants you to see right here. Uh, Haman cringes. Xerxes rises. Haman stands. Xerxes walks out. Haman falls. One more time. Get back and do it again. Come on, Haman. You're going to have sore sarcasm tomorrow. He cringes. Xerxes rises. Haman stands. Xerxes walks out. Haman falls. 
That's what the text wants you to see. This. When, when, it's, when Esther says, you know, this, it's this vile Haman, this is who it is, and the king gets up and leaves, and, and he's starting to beg for his life, it reads that he literally realized that the king had decided to destroy him. To destroy him. So Haman starts to plead for his life. Haman falls in the form of a supplicant before Queen Esther's couch. The king re-enters the room just as he sees Haman falling down on this couch. And the king mistakes this as an act of a seducer. Come and knock on my door. <laughs> Verse 8. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest my queen while she is in my house? The, the words literally can actually mean, will he ravish the queen in my own palace? See? It's this duality of what's taking place. Seduction is the last thing on Haman's mind, even now. It's also doubtful that the king would even misjudge these things so badly. But it gives the king a reason now to punish Haman. Originally, the plot to kill the Jews had his full endorsement. Right? Okay, and now what happens is that Persians believe that their kings never made any mistakes. They were gods on the earth, so they made no mistakes. So now he has a way out that also ties in with Esther's accusations of Haman. The whole idea behind ravish the queen would be understood as conquer the queen. It has political connotations as well as sexual. And so the political connotations means that he, someone is trying to assume his authority. By Haman trying to conquer sexually the queen, he'd be taking a treacherous step to try to take away the kingship from Xerxes. This is all throughout history and the Old Testament. You see this when in 1 Samuel chapter 3, Abner tries to take Saul's concubine. In 2 Samuel 16, Absalom tries to take King David's concubine to set himself up as king. In Genesis 35, Reuben takes Jacob's concubine. You go with me. Jacob's concubine uh, in order to become the head of the family. Uh, in 1 Kings 2.22, Adonijah goes to King Saul, uh, King Solomon's mom and asks for the hand of a Shulamite uh, that was one of King David's concubines to be his wife. And this is what Solomon says to his mother when she makes this request. Why do you request Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? You might as well request the kingdom for him. And then he goes on to say, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if Adonijah does not pay with his life for this request. Because he knew it was a request for kingship. And so King Xerxes uses it. The king exclaimed, go back. The king exclaims, Will he even molest my queen while she was in my house? And as soon as the words left his mouth, Haman's head is covered. And Haman is done. <laughs> Watch, don't, don't get all paws over there. And at this point, Esther no longer speaks in the story because strict harem regulations have been violated, so now she is quiet as well. So in verse 9, then Harbona. Harbona is one of the king's eunuchs that go all the way back from chapter 1. He is probably very excited because his position has just opened up into government and he's going to move up. So he's like, yeah. So Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs attending the king, said... This time he says it like a real eunuch. <laughs> He's the first Mickey Mouse ever. 
Now, th- now this is news. There you go. He, th- this is this is news to the king because the king never even knew that he had this gallows built. He never got the words out, and so the king says, "Hang him on it." Yay! Say it again. Hang him on it. So they hanged him on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. This is, this is poetic justice. Haman loses his life on the same gallows he had anticipated would bring such joy in killing Mordecai. Uh, in the beginning of the story, the king's fury leads to the dismissal of his queen, and now he, and then he needed a new one. Now his fury leads to the uh, getting rid of his highest official, and now he will actually need a new one of those as well, which sets up chapter 8. So you just saw great storytelling and acting at its finest. You get what you pay for, that's all I'm saying. And as we are going through this story, you, you can't simply overlook what it's saying because the story is supposed to be comedy. There are great reasons why Esther is in the Bible. See if you can see this. Uh, in Romans 5, 9, and 10, who, does, who do you think the Bible tells you that you are saved from? When you, when you have salvation, what are you saved from? God. You are saved from God. Salvation is deliverance by God from God from His wrath. Because God is angry at sin. In Scripture, who are we supposed to see ourselves as? The bad guys. Always the bad guys. We are not the good guys. We are Haman. We want God's kingship for ourselves. We want to be the king. We want to make our own decisions. We want to make our own decrees. We want to call what is right and what is wrong. We want to manipulate circumstances so we look good. If God looks good in the process, that's okay. But we'd rather look good ourselves. We do not seek God's glory first. But we are also like Esther. The only way for us to be spared as a people is through our relationship with the king. When you look at Jesus and when he comes, Jesus links all of his people to himself in the same way Esther linked all of the Jews to herself because of her proximity to the king. The only way we are saved is by being connected to the one who is closest to the Father, who is Jesus. Esther is an allegory of salvation. We are all found guilty, though sometimes we are too dumbfounded like Haman to even see it. And when we do see it, we realize, oh my goodness, my sin outweighs my righteousness because my righteousness is like rags. And we drop our bricks, we fall on the couch, and there's no reason the king is supposed to hear us. But we plead to our king, and our king hears. Our king pays the price when we were sold as slaves. Our king, Jesus, is impaled in our place for our sin so we do not have to be. We are given love and redemption. And that love and redemption is something that should be spread to everybody we come into contact with. So God's kingdom grows. Much of the things in our life are comedy. They're like this whole little bumbling sort of sketch that we just did for you. But in the end, we must realize that we are Haman, that we have sinned, and we need God's grace to be imparted to us so that we are not impaled, but we receive life because of our great and our good God. That is the point of Esther. That is the point of Scripture. Everything points to Jesus. You need Jesus. Now this morning, I invite you guys to communion because communion is a place where we realize that we are just like Haman, but we are saved because of our connection to our King. 
Jesus comes and he dies and his body is broken for you and I, which is represented by that cracker that we break. You dip that cracker in the wine or the grape juice that represents his blood that was shed for us so that we can be connected to Christ so that our king pardons us from our sins. This is what we remember in communion. We worship God through prayer. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you watch, it's like, oh, that's so funny. And then maybe you realize, oh, I am Haman. And you have never given your life to Christ and you are not connected with our God and Father in heaven. You need to be. And they would love to pray with you and introduce you to Jesus Christ. Uh, We're going to worship God through song. The band's going to come back up. And as they do, they're going to do a couple songs. Uh, And as they sing these songs, take a moment before you take communion. And ask God, where in my life am I living like Haman? Where in my life am I trying to put myself in your place? And then where do I need to submit myself to you? And then thank Him so much by connecting you to Him through His blood and redemption and His life that is now given to you. We worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the sidewall and in the back. And we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We worship God through fellowship. There's food and, and drinks in the back. Hopefully, no kickboxing. Hopefully, you guys can get together, get to know some other people, connect your lives with other believers. Because Jesus connects us with himself, connects us to the Father. The Spirit brings us new life. We are then connected with other people. Because we are all, hey, maybe, you know, this morning, someone says, hey, what's your name? You say, Haman. Say, oh, I'm Haman too. Yeah, we're all Haman. Because we are. We are. But we are also like Esther. Those who believe, connected to the king, getting redemption and grace. And as I, I will tell you, that this morning, I, I love the text today because it does relate so strongly to the gospel and what it means for us. And so today, don't, don't walk out sad and depressed. I want you to walk out happy and be like, yeah, I'm Haman. But God has redeemed me because that is good news. And the gospel is always good news. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we as your people thank you so much for coming and saving us. Though in our lives we act so much like Haman, you still deemed to die for us, to buy us back from the slavery and bondage that we had put ourselves into. So have us begin to live a life of grace and redemption and love and hope that other people can see that though they may be slaves to things they are in bondage to, you long to set them free as well. Use us as your children to bring you glory and make a difference in this world in which we live within. For you are our great and our good God. And we ask that our lives would not honor ourselves, but would honor you. Amen.